This morning we've arrived at the end of the book of Hebrews. And as we've gone through this, we've constantly been reminding ourselves of the circumstances this book was written to. It's a word of encouragement or could be translated exhortation to a group of discouraged Christians. These are men and women who are finding that it costs to be committed to Jesus. There are certain kinds of suffering and hardship that come just because they are Christians. And we learn from this book that at least some of them are considering walking away from their Christian commitment. So how is this book going to end? It's going to end with a tale of two cities. The city of God and the city of mankind. In the ancient world, the city stood for society. The city was where people came together. There was the rule of law. There was a concern to see the city flourish because that's how the individuals in the city would flourish. So there was a kind of commonality that bounded people together. And we could probably sum up the entire Bible as being a tale of two cities. The whole Bible is about the contrast between the city of this world and the city of God. The city of man and the city of God. And there are several places in the New Testament where this contrast is used very specifically. One of those places is Hebrews chapter 13. So if you haven't turned there, you'll find it in the church Bible in page 1212 and in the larger print Bibles, 1877. And we'll read together from verse 10 down to verse 25. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and a desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you 
with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. For in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. We said last week, as we looked at the first verses of chapter 13, we said that all of chapter 13 is an explanation of chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, which say this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Chapter 13 is showing us what acceptable worship looks like for God's people. And what we find is worship is not limited to singing and praying and listening to sermons. Worship includes the whole of our lives. All that we do in public and in private. And the beginning of chapter 13 gave us some examples of that. It says we're called to worship God through our love for others. Particularly mentioned brothers and sisters, fellow Christians. We're called to worship God through our sexual behavior. And through our attitude to money and possessions. And we noticed last week living the way the Bible calls us to live is going to make us stand out. The Bible's teaching is always countercultural. It always cuts against the grain. No matter where we live, no matter what time we live in. The Bible might challenge each culture in different ways, but it always challenges the culture. And the book of Hebrews ends by laying this out for us in the form of two cities. We've heard earlier in the book about a city to come. Chapter 11 said Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And here we're told if you live for that city, the city of God, you will pay for it in the city of man. Be prepared for rejection by this city because you belong to the city to come. That's the point of verses 10 to 14. But these verses begin with a reference to the Old Testament sacrifices. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. Verse 10 says, as Christians, we have access to the true sanctuary of God in heaven. Not in a tent in the desert, not in a bricks and mortar building in the old city of Jerusalem. We have access 
to the things that were just pictured in the tabernacle and the temple. The middle chapters of Hebrews showed us how the Old Testament priests could never get men and women into God's presence. In the tabernacle and in the temple, there was always a curtain of separation, symbolizing the separation between heaven and earth. But we were told the work of Jesus, our great high priest, has opened the way into God's presence. We have greater privileges than anyone in the Old Testament. Verse 10 is a reminder of that. But then in verse 11, we have a reference to the Old Testament Day of Atonement. Probably the most significant day in the Old Testament calendar. That ritual is described in Leviticus chapter 16. And near the end of that chapter, after the sacrifice itself has been described, we're told this. The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and intestines are to be burned. Why did that need to happen? It needed to happen because the camp of Israel was to be holy. The bull and the goat died as substitutes for sinful people. The sin of the people had been laid on the animals. And so their carcasses couldn't stay in the camp. They had to be removed. And we've seen all through Hebrews, the Old Testament rituals were foreshadowing Jesus and what he would do. So it's no surprise when verse 12 here goes on to say, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Earlier in the book, it's been explained for us in detail that Jesus died as the ultimate, once-for-all sacrifice of atonement. But here, the writer is interested particularly in the the outside-the-camp bit of Leviticus 16. When Israel settled in Canaan, eventually the city of Jerusalem replaced that camp in the desert. The temple in Jerusalem replaced the tabernacle tent. And when Jesus was crucified, it was outside the city, at a place called Golgotha. Jesus died for the people in Jerusalem to make them holy. But as far as they were concerned, They considered him to be a blasphemer. They considered him to be a threat. They considered themselves to be the holy ones and Jesus to be the unholy one. As they saw it, they were the ones in the right. Jesus was the disgraceful one. He was the danger to society. And so the city of Jerusalem ejected Jesus. He died outside because they considered him unfit for the city. Now, in reality, Jesus was the best thing ever to arrive in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem didn't see it that way. The people of the city saw Jesus as the problem. And the writer of Hebrews says, what we Christians need to realize 
is that the city of man is going to perceive Jesus' followers in the same way. Jerusalem in the time of Jesus showed itself to belong to the worldwide city of man. Human society that stands in opposition to God and God's purposes. And wherever we live in the city of this world, the city is going to see us as the disgraceful ones. Verse 13. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. This is not talking about moving to the countryside. This is talking about being willing to be marginalized and scoffed at and rejected by the city of man because we follow Jesus. The one who was crucified by the city of man. If we think back to Jesus' own words, he told his disciples, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He said to them, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. That's what Hebrews is telling us too. Don't be surprised when the city of man rejects you and persecutes you. Be prepared for it. Be prepared to be seen as a disgrace. How might that happen? Well, it will look different at different times and in different situations. Last century, in Soviet Russia, Christians refused to go along with the idolization of Stalin, the great leader. They refused ultimately to worship the communist state. And because of that, they were seen as a disgrace to their nation. The situation today is similar in North Korea. We were hearing about that on Thursday night. Now our circumstances are very, very different. In Britain, it's not the state that's idolized, it's the self. The belief that every individual is their own God. The belief that following your own heart is the most important thing of all. That each of us gets to decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. And if you and I refuse to agree with that, If we seek to live our lives according to another authority from God's word, including, as we saw last week, what God's word says about sex, then this society will call us disgraceful. How dare we say the Bible's morality is better than the morality that says anything goes, just follow your heart. In the city of man, what the Bible says about sex is now regarded as disgraceful. Christians are now seen as the immoral ones. 
And increasingly what the Bible says about the end of life is seen as disgraceful. More and more it's assumed we have the right to suicide if our life becomes unpleasant and difficult. And when Christians say it's for God to decide when our lives end, that is seen as disgraceful. Because it implies that there's only one God and he has authority over all of us. That we're not all gods of our own lives. Following the Savior who is rejected by the city of man will cause us to experience some kind of rejection by the city of man. So how do we keep going? How do we manage to bear the disgrace? We do that by remembering what city we really belong to. Verse 14. For here, we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. As Christians, we are residents of the city of man, but we are citizens of the city of God. The new society that God is building and that he will one day bring on this earth, the new heaven and earth. This city that we reside in, that we have our passports from, this city is not going to endure. Chapter 12 said it's going to be shaken and ultimately removed. But we are citizens of God's unshakable city. Verse 14 says we're to live looking for that city. In other words, we're to live with expectancy. We keep going because our eyes are on that city to come. The only way we will keep bearing the disgrace that goes with following Jesus is by keeping our hearts set on the city to come. We have to keep the picture of that city in our minds and our hearts. That joyful assembly that we read about in chapter 12. The city where there will be no more tears, no more loss, no more injustice, where our work will be free from frustration, our relationships will be healed. The place where the way of life that was treated as out of place here will be the only way of life there. The life of willing obedience and service to God. If we live for any length of time, we realize the city of man is constantly changing its standards and its values and its morals. New outlooks come along And just as everyone gets on board, those new ideas are thrown in the bin and they're replaced with something else. The only eternal values are the values of God's city. And they will always be out of step with the city of man. But they will never go out of date. When you and I realize that, we can put up with the disgrace and the rejection that comes from the city of man. It's only going to last for a few years. 
Better to miss out with regard to this present city than miss out on the eternal city that is to come. Now at this point, we might wonder, is this a call to cut ourselves off from the city of man then? To become uh, floaters who don't contribute to the society around us? Well, we get the answer to that in verses 15 and 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Tim Keller says these verses are a call for Christians to love the city that will never love us back. The Gospels tell us Jesus Christ wept over the city that rejected him. He wept over Jerusalem. And we are to share his concern. Citizens of the heavenly city should be the very best residents of this earthly city. Now we might not be recognized as good. The service we give might not be appreciated. This world might not want to hear about our Savior. But what better service can we give this world than to keep on openly professing the name of Jesus? We do that by continuing to meet together, to praise him as a body of believers, and by professing his name outside of these four walls being willing to speak about him in places where he is not honored. Sometimes he's not even known at all. But what greater way can we love the city that will never love us back? Whether the world wants it or not, there's nothing they need more than the good news about Jesus. But alongside our profession of Christ, we have to back up the message by doing good and sharing with others. When you and I live that way, we are being ambassadors for the city that is to come. That city is going to be characterized by doing good and sharing. And by praise given to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And notice how all of this is described as our sacrifice to God. Both verse 15 and verse 16 say that. Now we know that on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament sacrifice of atonement. That has been done once and for all. He has dealt with our sin and opened the way to God. We are not called to try and do that over again. When it comes to our forgiveness and acceptance with God, we trust only in what Jesus has done. But when we read the Old Testament, we also discover there were sacrifices, other sacrifices, sacrifices of thanksgiving, praise offerings that were to be brought. And you and I fulfill those as we profess Jesus' name and as we do good in his name. We're called to love this city 
that will never love us back. And then third, live under the authority and depend on the power of the city to come. Look at verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. If we're going to understand this, we have to look back to verse 7. And we have to ask, what kind of leaders are we talking about in verse 17? Well, verse 7 says, these were leaders who spoke the word of God to you. And we're told their way of life was worth imitating. Their lives matched up with their message. These leaders were people of integrity. And those were the initial leaders of the church that verse 7 is talking about. We're to assume, though, the current leaders have those same traits. So it's really important to see the authority we're talking about is actually God's authority. This authority does not rest in the leaders themselves. Any authority the leader has comes from faithfully presenting God's word. So what's in mind here are leaders who first submit themselves to God's word and then lead according to God's word. This is not a call to submit to a church leader just because there's a hierarchy and the leader is higher up than you are. Or because the leader has a title saying he's a leader. If you look back up to verse 17, in the NIV it begins, have confidence in your leaders. A slightly better translation would be, be persuaded by your leaders. So this is not about unquestioning submission. What is assumed here is that the members of the church want to submit to God. And as the leaders present God's word, the members are to let themselves be persuaded by God's word. If the leaders are being faithful ambassadors of God, then the church is to submit to them. And there's no doubt these words submit and authority are pretty much dirty words today. And a writer called Ted Tripp explains why they're dirty words today. He says the contemporary mind has only two ways to respond to authority. Rebellion or servility. We do not understand the idea of being an intelligent, independent, thinking person who is willing to be under authority. The prevailing attitude in the city of man is that authority is something to be bucked and flouted, unless you can get some of it for yourself. Never let anyone else tell you what to do. Never submit to anyone if you can at all help it. But as citizens of God's city, we realize authority is part of God's plan. 
It's true, because of sin, authority is often abused and we see that over and over. When human beings get power, they often misuse it. They use it to try and elevate themselves and become dictators. But the misuse of authority doesn't doesn't alter the fact there is an ultimate authority in this world. And he exercises his authority through other lesser authorities. The book of Romans even says human government has been established by God. And so has church leadership. When church leaders lead according to God's word, God's people are to be persuaded by those leaders. And as Tripp says, that does not mean being servile. This is the submission of someone who's engaged in what is being taught. Someone who's examining the scriptures to see if the leader is being faithful to God's word. And someone who then willingly submits to those leaders. Because to do so is to submit to God. If we were to work our way through the whole of the New Testament trying to pick out what it says about the church, what we would find is that the church is not supposed to be a dictatorship or a democracy. In a dictatorship, one person's word carries the day no matter what. In a democracy, everyone's word has equal weight. Decisions are made purely by what the greatest number says. But the church is different. No human leader is to have unquestioned authority in the church. And we don't believe either that the majority opinion is always right. What we find in the New Testament is that decision making in the church is not about each individual member asking, how can I get what I want? We're a community that together seeks what God wants. We want his will to be done. John Stevens explains it like this. He says decision making in the church is about the church as a whole seeking to discern the mind of Christ collectively. It's not about leaders trying to get their will done and church members trying to band together to get their will done. We seek God's will together. We all want to live in obedience to God's word. We want to be called back to his word when we stray from it. And in that situation, with everyone being involved, the New Testament says church leaders have a significant role. And they also have a pretty sobering responsibility. Look what verse 17 says. They watch over you as those who must give an account. That means give an account to God. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in London. In the 1800s he had a congregation of several thousand. And often... Other preachers would come to Spurgeon and say, I wish I had a bigger church. 
And Spurgeon would always reply by saying, when you stand before God and give an account of the men and women he put under your care, you will feel then you had quite enough people in your church. The New Testament picture of a church leader is a man who's vigilant. He's pictured as a shepherd watching over sheep. He wants to protect his flock from savage wolves. He wants to see them safely delivered to their Father in heaven. He wants to see these citizens of heaven living under heaven's authority already here on earth. The Apostle John said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And by children there, he means his brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of the church. When church leaders teach God's word, when church members are eager to hear and submit to God's word, then church leaders find their work to be a joy. And verse 17 says, think about the alternative. If you have diligent, faithful leaders, what benefit is it to you if you fight against their leadership and make it a burden to them? If they have been bringing you God's word, then that won't benefit you at all. Someone has said, the work of leadership is made joyful when it's carried out in an atmosphere of trust and cooperation. Not servile, thoughtless obedience. And not anti-authoritarian rebellion either. An atmosphere of trust and cooperation. When leaders and congregation together want to submit to God's authority. The authority of the city that is to come. And here at the end of Hebrews, we get a sense of that kind of atmosphere in the situation that's being addressed. Verses 18 and 19, the writer of Hebrews asks the congregation to pray for him. It seems likely he was one of their leaders. He's absent for some reason and he wants to be back with them. Then down in verses 22 to 25, he mentions his purpose for writing. It's to exhort them. And we've seen that can also be translated encourage. He asks them to bear with what he's written. That is the sense of accept or listen to it willingly. He's asking them to embrace what he says, not just put up with it. He mentions Timothy, another church leader who apparently has been in prison. Greetings are passed on from those who are in Italy. And in all of this, there's an atmosphere of trust and cooperation. Leaders love their people. The people know it. They trust them. They listen to them and they pray for them. That is a foretaste of the city to come. It's already breaking in on earth in Christ's church. So the church does not withdraw from the city of man, but the church does live by a whole different set of values. 
Instead of being ambitious for themselves, church leaders are ambitious for God's word and God's kingdom. They're ambitious for their people's welfare. And church members, instead of being suspicious of authority and chafing against it, they willingly submit to God's word and they cooperate with their leaders. You'll notice we skipped over verses 20 and 21. But we can't leave those verses out. Because if we do leave them out, we might go away with the impression that our hopes rest on having good leaders and willing followers. We might think our witness and our perseverance and our brotherly love depend on our own grit and goodwill. But if you've been in the church for any length of time, you know that we need supernatural power for all of these things. If you and I are going to live now for the city that's to come, if we're going to love the city of man that will never love us back, loving it through our witness and our good deeds, if we're going to make it all the way to the city to come, if we're going to love each other on the way there, we need a whole lot more than our own grit and our own goodwill. We need to be supplied with power from the city to come. And so verses 20 and 21 are a prayer. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. If we're going to live for God, we need to be supplied by God. We need more than just human shepherds. We need the care of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. We need the same power that led Jesus through the other side of death. We need that same power to lead us all the way to eternal life. As we commit to doing God's will in the city of man, we need God to equip us. So we will be able to honor him in our own particular situations, and they're all different. As Christians, we depend today on the power of the city to come. So we're going to join in praising the one who made us citizens of that city to come. We're going to praise the one who has given us access to God's throne of grace. Where we can come with confidence and we can receive the mercy and grace we need. We're going to sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This version will be known to some of you, but probably not all of you. So we're going to ask the musicians to play through the first verse and the chorus and then we'll join in.